Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we have a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that has gone into your very presence, into the heavenly holy of holies where Christ has appeared on our behalf. And Father, we have this hope as that anchor that gives us stability, Lord, in the midst of a world that is unstable. Father, we thank You that by Your grace, through Your work in the Spirit within us, Lord, those of us who have turned to Christ in faith, we are founded upon the rock. But Lord, we confess, Lord, even this week, Lord, we confess that there have been times where we have sought to stand on another foundation. Where we have sought our satisfaction, our hope in the things of this world, in the relationships in our life, in, in the, the deceitfulness of riches, in the ease and the comfort and the convenience that we have, Father. And Lord, we're reminded by these hymns that we sing before You that there is no other rock but Christ. So, Father, we confess those times this past week where we have sought refuge in other things. And Father, we give thanks to You that You have ordained for us a day, today, Your day, where we can come together and be reminded of the hope that is Christ, of the solid rock upon which we stand, of the fact that there is nothing but sinking sand around us, but yet in Christ we stand firm. So, Father, today, remind us of this truth through Your Word. May Your Spirit work in each and every heart here today, Lord. Those that are here in person, those that are watching online, Father, just work in our midst that we would know Christ more and that we would seek to be like Him more. We pray all this in Christ's precious name, pleading His blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, and this is, Lord willing, the last sermon we will have in 2 Peter. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, having Bart fill in for me next week while we're going to be away, and then when we come back in two weeks, uh, we'll be jumping into the last four books of your Old Testament, the Minor Prophets. Now, we have taken as our theme for this entire study of 2 Peter the theme of power for pilgrims found in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And of course, we've based this on what Peter says. He gives us this as his thesis, if you will, for this book in chapter 1, verse 3, that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And so everything that we need, all things that are needed for the pilgrim path is given through knowing Jesus Christ. 
And we've seen in this last chapter, Peter has described and given some warnings for us. And now as he ends this last, um, last few verses, these last four verses, he provides for us principles for the pilgrim's path. Principles for the pilgrim's path. And I'm, we're going to go ahead and read verses 14 through 18 again. And then we're just going to be focusing on the last phrase of verse 18 this morning. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Well, Peter has reminded us of these principles. He's called us to, first of all, walk a diligent walk. Walk with diligent obedience. We need to be eager, uh, expectant, desiring to obey our Lord. We need to be filled with faith as we do this. And we need to be patient as we walk in obedience before the Lord. And then as we walk, if we're going to truly be eager and diligent in our obedience, then we can't haphazardly go about the Christian life. We can't sort of nonchalantly approach it. We have to be careful. And so we're called to walk a careful journey. It's commanded in Scripture. Over and over again, we find commands in God's Word to be careful or to take care as we walk. And if we're being careful, we will reject error and we will seek Stability in Christ alone. And that stability is found in our growth. That we are called and commanded to grow. And again, just as a careful walk is commanded over and over again in Scripture, so is the command to grow. It's a common theme throughout Scripture that we are to grow up into Christ. And so we must grow, and we grow by knowing Jesus. We're to grow in His grace, dependent upon God's work within us, and we're to grow in our knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which now brings us to the last principle, which in many ways is the most fundamental principle of all humanity. It's what we are created for. And that is that we must walk for the glory of Christ. We must walk for the glory of Christ. Today is the Lord's Day, but in our society, that day has been co-opted and, and, and brought, brought, to, brought, to bay, brought to bear, and specifically in western Pennsylvania, it's no longer considered the Lord's Day. It's a Steelers Sunday. It's a football game today. And 
masses, not just here in western Pennsylvania, but certainly here in western Pennsylvania, but across this country, are, we're looking forward and are looking forward to this day, not as a day to do what they were created for, but as a day to do what suits them. And I can think of no clearer contrast to what the purpose of humanity has than looking at the showboating, the glory um, grabbing, the, the attention-seeking activity of football players in comparison to what we have been created to do. And that is to seek the attention, to, to point glory to Christ alone. And so this is how Peter ends his letter by reminding us of this fact that we must walk for the glory of Christ. Now, we're going to find that, first of all, this is something that we must live for. This is not an optional thing. It's not something that is, is sort of secondary to the Christian life. It is fundamental. You are created for the purpose of glorifying your King. You are not created for the purpose of glorifying yourself. Peter ends this book with a doxology. And many of the New Testament books end with these sort of expressions or overflow of praise to God. And likely what we're seeing here from Peter is he is sort of reflecting on everything that he has written in both likely first and second Peter. It sort of bubbles out and over and he praises God. He can't help himself do that. We see that in Paul's writings. He'll be in the middle of a, of a uh, discussion of, of something that is significant regarding what Christ has done to save us, and then he just bursts into praise. And there's this overflow of God's glory seen in what they write in the New Testament. Now, why does the Holy Spirit move these men to record that for us? I think it's to remind us of the very purpose for why we live, that we must live for the glory of God and for no other glory. Now, what we have here, particularly with Peter's doxology, is somewhat unique in the New Testament. Most New Testament doxologies refer to God in general or God the Father in their discussions of these doxologies. But here... If we look at what's being said in context in verse 18, our growth in grace and to the knowledge of who? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he points back and says, to Him, to Christ, be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. And so there's some implications that I think we need to note regarding this. And the first is Peter is clearly identifying Jesus Christ as God. One cannot provide glory to someone who is not God. In fact, God Himself says in Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to who? No other, nor my praise to carved idols. And so what we can see here is actually a passage that speaks to the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not just a phenomenal moral teacher. Jesus Christ is not just an, an amazing miracle worker. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. 
And that is clearly why He is worthy of our glory, of our praise, worthy of ascribing to Him this glory. In fact, Peter remembers in this book of the time where he saw Christ transfigured. He saw the the majestic glory And there the glory of God was revealed in Jesus Christ. And so we have to first of all recognize that Christ is God. There's an implication from this passage that way. But secondly, in linking this doxology with his previous statement that we're to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, he really immediately hashes out what the immediate result of Christian growth is worship. That you cannot grow as a Christian apart from worship of God. The more that we know Christ, the more that we see His glory, the more that we are transformed into that same glory, and the more we respond by giving glory to Him. Peter gives us a way to test whether or not we're growing. Are you growing not just in your knowledge of Christ, but are you growing in your worship of Christ? Do you find yourself driven to more and more proclaim His name, glorify and praise Him? Are we perpetually growing in our desire to see the glory of Christ in our lives and in others? Really, the the idea here that Peter is getting across is our desire for worship this week should be greater than our desire for worship was last week. We should want it more. We should want to see it more. We should want Christ to be magnified more in our lives. As we grow in the knowledge of Christ, we are to grow in worshiping Him. And so Peter as he ends this letter, points us to that which is the entire purpose for which we walk this earth. The glory of our King. This is the entire purpose of humanity. The Westminster Catechism, its first question, many of you are familiar with it. I realize it's not a Baptist catechism, but it's a good one. (laughs) And it begins, what is the chief end of man? What are we here for? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Man's chief end, our entire purpose, the reason why we are here on this earth is to seek the glory of our King. Now this is perhaps the most fundamental way in which pilgrims differ from the world in which we live. This is the thing that makes us different than the world. Remember, a pilgrim is someone who is journeying from one place to another and the place that they're in, they do not belong. We look forward to a kingdom to come, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We're not there yet. So what is it that makes us different from the rest of the world? It is this fact that we live for the glory of Christ. In many ways, both First and Second Peter are descriptions of what that means and what that looks like. This contrasts with the prideful and self-aggrandizing focus of unbelievers. 
Those who belong to this world are tied to it. And they're tied to it in ways that have intertwined with the very basis of who they are so that they seek not the prestige and the glory of God, but their own glory and honor. The fundamental drive of fallen humanity is most clearly seen in this. And we have an example of this in Scripture where we see this principle let loose on humanity. It's at the Tower of Babel. There we have mankind coming together and, and, and they, are, they are working together in unity. You know, I think we need to be careful in where we seek unity. Yes, unity is important, but unity around the right things. Humanity can be united around the wrong thing. And Babel is a great example. They had come to a point where they looked at themselves. And notice what they say in Genesis 11.4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And this is what all of fallen humanity lives for. Let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. It is at the Tower of Babel that mankind commits to exalt not God, but themselves. We, if, if you were to look at some of the history of what's going on with Babel, what, what is likely being built here is what we call today a ziggurat. All right? So if you go back to 10th grade history or whatever history of civilization you took in, in college, a, a ziggurat was these sort of, uh, sort of tower-like things that were made in, in Mesopotamia. And they were places where people would worship. They became temples. And here, we see all the pomp and circumstance stripped away of what religion seeks to do. Who does religion seek to put forward as the one deserving of glory? And they guise it with gods and idols, but the reality is, who are people building a name for? Themselves. All religion, apart from that which looks to Christ alone, all religion seeks to build up self as the one deserving of glory. R.C. Sproul, commenting on this passage in Genesis 11, says this. He speaks of Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a 19th century atheist philosopher. He said that the most fundamental drive of the human heart is the will to power. A lust for dominance. A lust for preeminence. This is what drives fallen humanity, Sproul says. It is the legacy of Eden, the living out of the serpent's seduction when he said, you shall be as gods. Why should God get all the glory? Why should the monuments of this world only be to praise and honor the Creator? Can't we share in that? Can't we claim it for ourselves? Can't we supplant Him as the sovereign one? And so Babel is, let's gather together and build a city. Let us make monuments that even God cannot bring down. Monuments that will endure forever. And those monuments or in ziggurats, in statues, in walls, in cathedrals, in skyscrapers, and more. Humanity lives for their own glory. 
And we can hear the echo of Babel's voice in the words of Neil Armstrong when he stepped foot on the moon. That's one small step for who? Man. One giant leap for who? Mankind. And we marvel at the height of what we have accomplished. And nothing wrong with going to the moon. Nothing wrong with exploring those things. In fact, we're able to know more about the greatness of our God through those adventures. But the problem is, and the bent within humanity is that all of that we take and we turn it in not to praise God, but to praise ourselves. And so Peter speaks of us as pilgrims, finding that hope by turning from these false things and turning to live for the glory of God. To Him to Christ be, and notice what he says, the glory. It's not indefinite. It's not to Christ be glory. It is the glory that he is the only one deserving of this prestige, this honor, this worship. There's going to be lots of obstacles that are going to come across our path as pilgrims that are going to want to trip us up so that we don't live for Christ's glory alone. There's going to be false teachers in the church and they're going to beguile you with smooth words and and they're going to come up from among us and they're going to seem like one of us and they're going to seek to take away glory from Christ and bring it to themselves. We live in a world today where everything, everything is tailored so that you are your own God. You know, social media exists to praise you. You put a like, you put something up on Facebook and people like it. You know that they've actually done studies that when someone likes something or you get a retweet, that, the, that endorphins are actually released in your brain, in your brain chemistry, so that it's the, it has the same type of effect as drinking alcohol or taking drugs. That same thrill. You know that your Twitter feeds, your Facebook feeds, you realize that they're tailored for you? I mean, it's, it's so bad sometimes that, that sometimes you think about something and it shows up on your Facebook feed, right? You've seen that? And certainly we've all talked about, we've been talking about something and suddenly there's this ad here. Are our phones listening to us? I don't know. Maybe. Who knows? But all of that is, is showing us that we live in a society that is seeking to tailor everything for the glory of self. Pilgrims are not to be that way. Pilgrims are called to seek the glory of Christ. He alone must be the one we seek to worship. And so as we turn from these false teachers, we turn away from that which seeks to call us to our own prestige and honor. We do it looking to a new heavens and a new earth Wherein what dwells? Righteousness. And it's not our righteousness that's there. It's Christ's. So He will receive all the praise and glory for all eternity. Our response should be like that of the psalmist in Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. 
This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected, and we know that stone is Christ, and we know that that stone and its glory was rejected by this world, it becomes the cornerstone. This is Yahweh's doing. It is what? Marvelous in our eyes. You see, this is how knowing Christ produces worship. As you know Christ more, as you see Him work more, it should marvel your life. It should be the thing that you look at starry-eyed and in awe of. And then that produces within you singing praises to Him. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and He has made His light to shine upon us. So worship, he says, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. If there's anything you take from this sermon this morning, it is those four words. I will extol my king. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. So the very basic reason we exist on this planet is to praise our King. That our voices should naturally join with Peter's here. To him, to Christ, be the glory. But notice what else Peter says here. When do we seek this glory? We seek it now. Seek Christ's glory now. Peter speaks of this doxological purpose as the focus of we as pilgrims at this moment. Why has God redeemed you? Why why has He chosen you from before the foundation of the world? Why did He covenant with the Son before time existed to save you? Why does He give you Christ's righteousness? Why does He give you the Spirit? What is God seeking to accomplish through all of this? That we would glorify Him. Ultimately, His desire is that we would proclaim His glory. Living that out. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that now? I just want to provide three areas of your life that you need to, I think, evaluate this morning. How do we live this out? Well, we seek Christ's glory, first of all, in our worship. We seek Christ's glory in our worship. This is the natural way, I think, that we would think about this. When we come together as a congregation on the Lord's Day, it is to seek Christ's face and to worship him that is our primary intention and goal as we gather here weekly this is the primary goal of the economy of the church now why does the church exist does the church exist so that we can we can have a a social club does the church exist so that you can have connections with people and you can you can have you know socialization is that why the church exists does the church exist to meet your needs And I feel like that's oftentimes how we evaluate things. I come to church because it helps me. It's focused on me. Now, there are wonderful 
ancillary blessings of God's grace that do come from coming to the church, but that is not why we exist. And if that's the reason you're coming to worship on Sundays is for you, you're missing the entire point. Notice what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, that God gives gifts to the church. We're to use it to serve one another as the good stewards of God's very grace. If someone speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, if someone serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that. So what's the purpose of all of this? That in everything, God may be what? Glorified. Through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why has God given you gifts to exercise in this local congregation? Is it so you would look good? Did God give you these things, these abilities, so so that people would know that you're an upright, moral, standing person? No. God gave you these gifts. He saved you. He united you to Christ. He's he's working in you right now so that He would be glorified in Jesus Christ. And so that needs to be the focus of our time when we come together as God's people. I wonder as you leave here week after week how you evaluate your worship experience at Bible Baptist. I often think about this myself and, and how, you know, how did worship go this week? I'm sure you probably have the same thing. Maybe some weeks you come in and boy, that was, that was a really great worship service or uh, wasn't so good. And, and I think oftentimes the criteria that we base our evaluation of worship upon is criteria that has to do with ourselves, Right? I really like that hymn. I'm glad we sang that hymn. Or I really like that new song that Pastor sang. I was really glad to see so and so. I was this, I that. And we begin with this focus on self. Now, should we enjoy the gifts that God gives us as we come to worship? Yes. Rejoice, enjoy, delight to come to praise Him. But Let your evaluation of worship be, was Christ glorified? And if you come into a service here and Christ is not glorified, I want you to pull me aside from that door and talk to me because we've gone way off the rails. We're here to worship our King. What about... Was Christ magnified and glorified by you? We have this tendency of looking outward at everyone else or outward at the pastor, outward at the piano player, outward at the song leader. We have this tendency to look everywhere else but ourselves. And I think when we leave here, not only should we ask the question, was Jesus Christ glorified, but did I glorify Christ? We need to seek Christ's glory in our worship. But that's just Sundays, right? The Lord's Day, one day a week, and then the rest of our lives we can live however we want to, right? Now, when Peter says, to Him be glory both now, he's referring to an all-encompassing principle for your life that affects every day and affects one area that I don't think we talk about a lot, 
It, we should seek Christ's glory in our work. We need to seek Christ's glory in our work. He doesn't call us once a week to worship Him. Again, the Westminster Catechism, it is the entire purpose of our lives. And again, that includes every aspect of our lives, what we do with our families, what we do in our free time. But I think we don't talk enough about seeking the glory of God in our work. And I really feel like if we were to get a hold of this and and really let this permeate our hearts, it will change our attitudes towards work. I'm sure if I were to take a poll, how many of you like work? I don't see many hands going, okay, we have one person's hand who went up here. A couple of people. All right, most people say, ah, I'm not a big fan of work, right? What's that song go? Everybody's working for the weekend. That's, that's how I would dance if I dance as a Baptist pastor. You know, that, that's what we, th- we want to try to get past work so that we can live for ourselves. We view work as a needed evil so that we can get to the days that are about us, where we can do what pleases us. But if we catch a vision of glorifying Christ now and understanding that our work is a means to glorify Christ, well, then that changes our attitude about work, doesn't it? It no longer becomes about making sure I can get past it so that I can do what I want to, it itself is a way for me to fulfill the very purpose for which I was made. Paul reminds us of this in Colossians 3. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service. Listen, if there's any passage in Scripture that we glaze over and don't obey, I think this is one of them, right? Right? Oh, I do what my boss tells me to do because I have to. But, and I'm making sure that I'm doing it right. You know, you know how it is? I, I used to work in a cubicle farm, and I, I knew how I would do this myself. You know, I'm, I'm working, sort of working at my leisurely pace, and the manager walks by, and what do you do? You sit up, and you start acting like you're working even harder, right? That is the very definition of eye service. And so Paul says, no, we're to work with sincerity of heart. And that sincerity of heart comes from what? Fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily because you're working for who? The Lord. And not for men. I'm just curious, does your boss, do your managers, do your coworkers know that the reason you're there day in and day out, Monday through Friday, is not to get the paycheck so that you can play, but so that you can glorify God? Do they know that? Solomon, in his great wisdom, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Because there's going to come a day where you will go to the grave. There's no wisdom or knowledge or thought in Sheol, in the grave, where you are going. There will come a day where you will, at least from a temporal perspective, not be able to work. So do it with all your might because you're doing it for the glory of Christ. We crave recognition. We crave attention. We crave people looking at what we've done in our work. And Paul tells us that we're to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. 
but rather in humility were to count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to also to the interests of others. And, and again, are we, are we ever able, and I just want you to think about this for a second, because this is a hard truth to get across, but are we ever able to do something for us? Have something for me? What does Paul say? Do we, are we able to do anything from selfish ambition or conceit? The answer is no. Now, this can be abused to teach things that the Scripture do not teach. The Bible also calls us to rejoice and delight and to find, to find joy in the things God has given us. So I'm not suggesting that, oh, we have to have this ho-hum life. I can't have anything that I enjoy. That's not what Paul is saying. Rather, he's saying your enjoyment of the things in life, and particularly as we're looking at it, your enjoyment of work should be found in the fact that you're given the privilege to worship the king. You can glorify Christ through what you've done. Is there anything that we do that we have not received from God? The breath in your lungs is a gift of His grace. The beats of your heart, whatever skills you have in your your, um, profession, you didn't do that. God did. So live for His glory Again, as Paul says to the church in Colossae, Christ is the head of the body. He is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's done all this so that in how many things? How many things? One more time. How many things? Everything Everything he might have preeminence. Does that mean that we get to have preeminence every now and then? So that is why Peter is saying now, To Him be glory both now. The final thing we can seek Christ's glory in is in our words. Our worship, our work, and our words. I almost put witness in here. I could have gone either way because they're both W words and preachers have to have those alliterated things. But our words here, I think, is backing up a little bit and seeing, do we glorify God in the way we talk? You know, our words are powerful. You realize that your words are powerful. Not that the words themselves are powerful, but rather they can do some very damaging things. What does James say about the tongue? It's a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. It is a world of unrighteousness. It's set among our members, starting, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and it is set on fire by hell. Do you think James has a positive view of the, of the tongue? He's pretty clear here. Our words can be immensely damaging, but they can also do great things by God's grace. We're not to have corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only that which is good for building up as fits the occasion so that it may give what? Grace. God has intended that one of the means of His grace given to His people is through what we say to each other. And so our words 
should be that which glorifies Christ so that people would see the glory of Christ and they would grow in grace and the knowledge of Him. Ultimately, those who are genuinely captivated and seeing the glory of Christ, they cannot help but spread that glory to others. There's a story in the life of Jesus where two blind men come to Him in Matthew chapter 9. And they cry out to Christ, Have mercy on us, Son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. They were able to see physically for the first time, but even from a more substantial viewpoint, they saw spiritually the glory of Christ. And Jesus sternly warns them, See to it that no one knows about it. But what could, they couldn't help themselves, could they? They went away and spread His fame through all that district. That should be the testimony of every believer. Now, we should not do it in ways that are disobedient to Christ. And Christ here particularly tells them to keep this to themselves for His purposes here. So they should have obeyed. But the desire here, I think, is what's so compelling. Because it's so missing from our own lives, isn't it? Do you desire to spread the fame of Christ abroad? Paul tells us that our speech has to always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we can know how to answer each person. Paul. You know, if you were to talk to the Apostle Paul, do you think he ever talked about just sort of mundane things when he was in the churches? Talked about the Colosseum and, and how he's really rooting for, you know, gladi- Maximus the gladiator or whatever? You really think that's what Paul talked about? In fact, we know that. 1 Corinthians 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Is that the testimony of your life that you seek so that people would know nothing else but Jesus Christ and Him crucified? That His glory would be the thing you speak about We live in a world of people that have been blinded by the God of this world. They cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So what does Paul say he, commissioned by the Holy Spirit, is called to do about that? I proclaim not myself, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Listen, this is the very fundamental difference between pilgrims and those that are not. Not proclaiming ourselves, but proclaiming Christ. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of what? The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Are you seeking Christ's glory now? through your worship, when you come here on Sundays, through your work, seeking it not as a mundane task, but as an opportunity to glorify Him 
and finally through your words? Are you witnessing so that the fame of Christ would be seen in the world around you? Ultimately, our desire in sharing the gospel is that other people would become worshipers. John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, points to the goal of all evangelistic work. He says that missions exist because worship doesn't. And he's right on. Is that your desire in your conversations and your words? So we're to live for Christ's glory. We're to live for Christ's glory now. And then notice how he ends. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The final thing that Peter ends, the very thing he ends with this book with is our anticipation of Christ's eternal glory. Pilgrims look forward to the day when only the glory of Christ is that which will be seen. Right now, we walk in a world where that glory is hidden and shielded by sin. But don't we yearn for that day where sin will be gone so that all we will see is the glory of Christ. That's all we will see. There won't be anything else to captivate our minds. It will all be the glory of Christ. You know, the descriptions of the eternal state speak of the fact that there's no sun or moon. Isaiah speaks of this. There shall be no more your, the sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for your brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting life. Your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands. For what purpose? That I might be glorified. In fact, this is why John, or or the description that John gives of the new Jerusalem says that there is nothing accursed that will be there. Because there is the throne of God and the Lamb. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever. Why does God take away the accursed things out of the new heavens and the new earth? So that nothing would detract from His glory. I think that when Peter pulls us to to look at this and to say we're to be giving him glory now into the day of eternity, it should begin to change our expectations of what heaven, what eternity is going to be like. Now, there are glorious things and truths of God's word that we can look forward to. But my fear is that those things we have elevated over the main thing. I'm sure many of you look forward to being reunited to loved ones who have gone on before you. And that is a a hope that we have. Maybe maybe you look forward to that day where gold is going to be so plentiful that it's going to be used as pavement. You know, I don't see a lot of people digging up the asphalt here and putting it in their safes, right? That's the idea of the streets being paved of gold. Or those those, um, 
those pearly gates. Maybe your entire life you've continued to, to think about the mansion that's going to be given for you, which I hate to say it, but that more correctly is just a place. Jesus isn't promising us houses in, in, in Nevillewood, all right? That's not what he's saying there. Maybe you look forward to, to the day where tears are going to be wiped away and pain will be gone. And listen, I'm not trying to detract you from finding hope in those things. They're wonderful promises of God's word, but if you, that's the only thing, if that, and if that's maybe even just the primary thing you're looking for, you're missing the whole purpose of eternity. Because there, the glory of the hope, the joy of eternity is that you will see Jesus as he is. There will be no sin around you. And listen, there will be no sin in you that will shield your eyes from seeing the glory of Christ. The God of this world who's blind in the eyes of unbelievers, where is he? He's in the lake of fire. He is gone for all eternity. There's nothing left between you and the glory of Christ. Is that your hope for eternity? To see the glory of Christ emblazoned upon the sky of the new Jerusalem forever. So we have to realize that God does not remove the limitations of this world so we can pursue our own desires in eternity. Rather, God removes the limitations of this world so we can pursue the glory of Christ uninhibited. So that when Peter takes these two things together, both now and to the day of eternity, it really becomes the very fact that what we live for now is what we will live for for all eternity. Which then that should come back and as we evaluate our own lives can be a very convicting thing. I just asked, do you think you'll feel comfortable in eternity when the only thing that exists is the glory, the only thing that exists that you're going to seek is the glory of Christ? Does the glory of Christ and talking about it make you uncomfortable now? See, the glory of salvation is that we get to enjoy little bits of eternity as we glorify Christ. There's that saying, he's so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly good. And I understand what that sentiment's being said there, but listen, if you're not heavenly minded, you can truly be of no earthly good on earth. Because heaven is where Christ's glory dwells. So, Peter ends by calling us to walk for the glory of Christ, living for His glory as our fundamental meaning and purpose in life, seeking that glory now in our worship, in our work, in our words, and anticipating Christ's eternal glory when that day will come where His glory is revealed forever. So Peter really ends where he began this book. If we look 
at chapter 1 and look at verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, through the knowledge of Christ, the one who called us to His own what? Glory and excellence. Do you know this Christ? Are you growing in this knowledge? Are you yearning for and desiring His glory above all things? Second Peter has been a great thrill for me to study. I hope it's been a, a helpful, blessed thing for you as well. Let me suggest, now that we're done with this study, this afternoon, it's not a long book, Read Second Peter. Read it twice. And focus on this theme. Because tomorrow, maybe in the next couple hours, you're going to wander out into a world that is hostile to Christ and to the things of the Lord. And you're going to feel the tension. You're going to feel how strange this world is. Maybe something's going to happen this week at work. Maybe you're going to have a friend who's going to tempt you to do something that would be demeaning to the name of Christ. Maybe a problem's going to come up and it's going to tempt you to turn away from your pilgrim path. Today's an opportunity to ground yourself in that which strengthens you for the pilgrim walk, knowing Jesus more seeking His glory above all things. As Paul tells the church at Corinth, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Father, for Your sovereign working in through the Holy Spirit in Peter's life, that he would be moved and inspired by the Spirit to pen these words. Father, we thank you that they are the words of life, that they are spiritual bread and meat for us so that we can grow up into Christ, that we can grow and know Him more. Father, take your word today. Apply it to our hearts and lives. Change us, mold us, shape us more to be like our Savior, all for His glory. We pray this in Christ's precious name.